Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrak. On this episode, I speak with two women, one a recent UNM grad and one a professor in the Honors College. Each of them overcame some serious challenges and used those experiences to create. Professor Amaris Ketchum used comic-style diary entries to process her husband's kidney cancer. And new graduate Abriana Morales has become a passionate advocate for supporting sexual assault survivors. She just graduated with a double major in psychology and criminology and a minor in math. Before she even got to UNM, she created the Sexual Assault Youth Support Network, a nonprofit organization devoted to supporting, empowering, and connecting youth sexual assault survivors and those that support them. She has spent the past several years advocating for survivors in communities, in the legislature, and in the academic discourse. And she's poised to help create a national youth advocacy corps. Abriana's path started when she was sexually assaulted at 15 by a teacher in her school. And just a warning, this interview does include discussions of sexual violence. After I came forward, I, you know, was really kind of faced with the social, emotional, and like legal turmoil of victimization. Um, I was, again, just a sophomore in high school, lost all the friends that I had, really struggled to be believed, Mm. um, you know, dealing with PTSD and all the different like emotional and mental issues that come after being victimized. And then also trying to navigate the legal system, which is difficult for victims of sexual violence generally, but especially so as a young person who really didn't have that sense of agency or... I don't know, control over the entire experience. I kind of felt like I was on a ride with, you know, what people wanted and what people you know, thought was correct. And I really didn't get much of a say in it. And so those experiences really made me want to help survivors like myself. And I really felt that as much as I tried to find other people, other 15 year olds that may have been going through what I was going through, I really just didn't see any sort of like avenue or platform for them to speak about their experiences. And so that really inspired me to create Sexual Assault Youth Support Network, which just started off as a website. Um, we had our first like photo series, which is our like big project, the I Am series, um, where we photographed sexual assault survivors holding a sign that says, I'm a sexual assault survivor and I am blank. And they put in a word, phrase, and anything that displays that their victimization doesn't define them. And the photo series itself kind of displays the intersectionality of survivorship, that survivors come from, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, gender identities, um, age groups, and really shows survivors that haven't come forward yet that there is a community out there that supports them and might represent them. And for survivors that have come forward, it allows them to kind of feel empowered and in solidarity with this larger like network of survivors. So since starting SASIN when I was 15, so about seven That's years. That's amazing. Can I just say you started this at 15? Oh, okay. yeah. Thank you. I just want to say that. No, no, thank you so much. It's uh, Looking back at it now, I'm surprised at it myself because I feel like I didn't fully understand exactly what I was getting into and how much it was going to change my life. Um, really, all I wanted was just to, you know, make other people like me feel seen and heard. And it's really turned into a lifelong dedication to victim advocacy. And I'm very, very thankful um, for it. But since starting it at 15, I've done a lot of legislative advocacy, um, working alongside state senators to try and extend the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse here in New Mexico. Um, so that's an ongoing effort. And then, you know, as a UNM student, that kind of legislative advocacy has kind of come through collaboration with the Women's Resource Center and through um, working with students to try and, you know, call and advocate for legislation um, to extend such limitations as well as, you know, affirmative consent legislation here in the state. My 
next position after graduation is um, working with the National Organization for Victim Assistance, or NOVA, as the program manager for this new project or new program um, called the Youth Advocacy Corps. So funded by the Officer Victims of Crime, uh, we're getting together a you know pilot project partnering with five universities, uh, UNM being one of them, training marginalized college students to become victim advocates in their own communities. And I'm really, really excited to lead that. Is it mo- only around sexual violence or is it all kinds of? All kinds of victimization. Okay. Yeah. So we're partnering. Um, so UNM is one of the partners, um, a tribal campus, Ani Nakota College in Montana, Dominican University in Illinois, Coahoma Community College in Mississippi, and uh, UTEP, so University of Texas at El Paso. And we really focused on working with minority serving institutions to ensure that, you know, a lot of victimization happens predominantly within marginalized communities, but victim advocacy as a field is overwhelmingly white. And so what we wanted to do was really allow youth to get engaged in victim advocacy and to have an avenue to get engaged in victim advocacy, while also ensuring that we increase diversity and representation within the field itself. I saw in an interview where you said the person you are now is very different from the person who first came to UNM. How so? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I mean, I was 17 the change between 17 and 21 for anyone is just super intense. I mean, I met my partner of four years here. I got really interested in research, which I think is like the largest change for me. But it was through like my coursework and interacting with professors, being part of the McNair program here on campus, that I realized that academic research um, really has potential to be a you know, unique um, extension of my victim advocacy. Um, I think that, you know, research and, you know, academic inquiry and asking questions really gives a voice or can give a voice to people that aren't typically heard or listened to. And I feel like survivors need to be part of a lot of these conversations. And really, research is a really interesting and I think productive avenue for that, especially in connection with policy and with community practice. I think that there is a lot of disconnect between, you know, community practice researchers and policymakers. And having done research, having been a victim advocate, having, you know, tried to advocate for legislative change, I've seen how all those fields work. And I think they could work really well together um, if given the opportunity. And so I think that for me, the biggest change is just that shift in goal and that shift in perspective that I wouldn't have had had I not gone to UNM. You mentioned the McNair program. What is that? Yeah, the McNair program is a federally funded program to get uh, marginalized first generation or low income um, college students into the academy. So it's a two year program um, here at UNM and at other colleges throughout the U.S. that essentially um, we get a a faculty mentor that we work with on a research project over the course of two years um, and we receive a stipend um, to fund our research and our living expenses um, while we work with our faculty mentor. And then we get, um, you know, specialized academic advising, opportunities to go to certain research conferences and really to learn more about the process of going from undergrad into graduate school and getting to know how the academy works in a way that might not be accessible to folks that don't have family or Mm -hmm. like a history of, you know, being exposed to how academia is. What are some of the changes you've been pushing for as an advocate, like at the state level? Yeah, like I said, I've been working to extend the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse. Why Uh, is that important? So if you're sexually abused as a child, the statute of limitations are how long you have to report the crime tolls until you're 18. And so after you're 18, you have between four and six years to report, depending on the severity of the crime, which puts you between like 23 and 24 years old to being able to come forward with something that happened to you as a young person. 
And we know that most victims of child sexual abuse don't disclose until the age of 51. And so it's kind of you know a woefully inadequate um, amount of time for someone to grow up and then come to terms with what's happened to them, maybe become sufficiently disconnected from family that might be involved in the abuse to you know come forward and you know pursue justice for this. I think that, like I said, this happened to me when I was 15. And, you know, I came forward and I did a lot of this advocacy work and have been very public with my victimization. But that comes from a really, I think, a place of privilege. My parents believed me. They supported me. I had the resources to be able to deal with what happened to me and recover and get to this point of healing where I could work on advocacy. But the reality for a lot of survivors and for a lot of people is they might might not have supportive families. They might not have people that believe them or the resources to cope. And so I think that expecting people to come forward by such a young age, 23 or 24, for something that might have been, you know, super devastating and super difficult to deal with in childhood, it's not right. And uh, I've been working to kind of extend the statute of limitations since I was 17 now. And uh, we really just want to make sure that all survivors um, get the chance to pursue justice in whatever way is meaningful for them. And this has not been successful so far in the legislature. So when I was 17, the first time we went through, um, it did pass the House and the Senate and ended up on the governor's desk. But there was a technicality in the like bill language itself. And one of our final edits, I, I suppose, there was something that, you know, legalized something else or mm-hmm. whatever. And so there, the governor had to veto the bill. And then ever since then, everyone that didn't really want the bill to pass has really dug their heels in. And so we've been getting stuck in the Senate Judiciary Committee for three years now, Mm. I think. And so that's actually what happened this past session. Um, Again, we SACEN collaborated with the WRC to get students to, you know, help call senators and, you know, really advocate for the bill. But the Senate Judiciary Committee is where almost every sexual violence bill this past session has died um, in the Hmm. legislature. What were some of the other ones you were advocating for? The affirmative consent bill. um, Yeah, passed to the House um, very, very quickly and with an overwhelming amount of support got to Senate Judiciary and died. What would that have done? I think it was really advocating for affirmative consent education in K-12 through schools, um, just allowing children to be educated about consent and specifically affirmative consent. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it passed the House um, very quickly and with overwhelming support. But really, that Senate Judiciary Committee is where a lot of these bills have just been stalled. Going back to the Youth Advocacy Corps, can you tell us a bit more about what that's going to look like when it gets started? Yeah, yeah. So it's a three-year pilot program. We're in year one right now, which is really the development of the program. But ultimately, what we want to do is we want to um, select 18 fellows across our five campuses. So each campus would get you know two to three fellows. And those would be junior or senior level college students that would receive um, training. So they'd be trained as a victim advocate, receive a credential to be a victim advocate, and then be placed in a nine-month-long paid fellowship um, at a local victim services agency. And that's for any kind of victimization. And so they would have that you know, paid victim service internship, and then after that, be able to be you know, a trained advocate with field experience and hopefully continue on in the advocacy field. Oh, it's so interesting. You are obviously very busy. Are you taking any downtime now that you've graduated? <laughs> I'm trying to. Um, so I actually, I go to D.C. in a couple weeks. Um, so for the Truman Scholarship, we have our Summer Institute, which is, hmm. you know, we spend two months in D.C. Um, in the George Washington University dorms. I didn't know that. What are you doing? Uh, yeah, so we're just all doing our own respective internships and jobs. I'm doing my Youth Advocacy Corps position just because mm-hmm. it's a remote position. So I'm just taking my laptop with me to D.C. and uh, working there. 
But you know, all of us are going, all 57 of us are going to be in the dorms there, and it's going to be a lot of fun. They're I from think. all over the country? Yes, mm-hmm. all of, I think there's at least one from each state. 57 of my closest friends and I are all going to be in D.C. together working on our respective issues, and they're all doing such amazing things. I love hearing about all of the things that they're doing, and I'll get to explore D.C. with all of them. So it's like still work, but fun work and things I'm mm-hmm. excited about. That's exciting. And it's exciting you're staying here in Albuquerque to do this work. Yes, yes, definitely. I have a couple of research projects that I'm also working on wrapping up and, you know, continuing after graduation. And so I'm very happy to be staying here in Albuquerque to do them. Oh, great. Abriana Morales, new grad from UNM. Thank you so much for talking yeah. with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you or someone you know has experienced sexual assault, call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at one 800 656 4673. This is University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. That was Abriana Morales. She just graduated with a double major in psychology and criminology and a minor in math from the University of New Mexico and has been a tireless advocate for fellow survivors of sexual assault. She created the Sexual Assault Youth Support Network and is now working on a national youth advocacy corps. When Amaris Ketchum's husband was diagnosed with kidney cancer, she began documenting daily life, from the terrifying to the mundane, in comic-style diary entries. Her book is Unfiltered, a Cancer Year Diary, published through Casa Urica. Ketchum's writing has appeared in creative nonfiction, The Los Angeles Review, Prairie Schooner, Rattle, and The Utney Reader. Well, Amaris, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, you are a writer, a poet, a muralist, a teacher, an outdoor enthusiast. What drew you to this particular genre of comic-style diary entries? I had written um, a couple of poetry books before and then also a camping guide um, to New Mexico. And my students were starting to get more and more interested in comics. And so I thought, oh, geez, I should figure out what what the deal is with them. And I've always kind of liked art myself. And so... During uh, shortly before the pandemic, I started keeping a, a comics diary as a way to get better at drawing and to understand the medium more. And I kind of had this fantasy of like, oh, I'll do comics about all these great places I went in New Mexico while I was camping because a lot of my writing is usually about place and about New Mexico in particular. So I started keeping the diary comics and and would you do a daily entry? Yeah. Of writing and then illustrate it? Well, so what I what I would do is every morning I'd get up and have my coffee and I would write down what I ate the day before, one thing that I ate, and then a news headline as a way to like let the coffee set in. <laughs> I'd scroll the usually the New York Times or local news. Then I'd start to develop my idea for what I was gonna write about and so then I'd start with the title at the top because the usually the lettering of the title gives you a little bit more time to kinda get your idea going, and then I would draw the panels and write and illustrate them. So it's actually a pretty quick process, trying to do it all while you're having coffee, basically. Is it a way to sort of log your day or to process what happened or both? I think like all diary practices, it it is a kind of form of mindfulness um, in that way of, you know, thinking about your day, processing what happened the day before. And also teasing out a story from your day. Like you can tease out a story from just about anything. Um, there's one in there about, you know, buying a tonic water that we didn't like. You know, it's not, there's not much to the story. But there's there's something I think kind of charming about the way that comics allow for you to treat the mundane details of, hmm. of your life too. 
And uh, did you begin this particular work when you got your husband's diagnosis, or had you already started it? No, so I had been keeping a diary comic for about uh, a couple months before he got his diagnosis. So the book sort of, it starts before he gets his diagnosis, and then about 20 or 30 pages into it, he he starts urinating blood. Mm. Um, and so that's like the sign of like, oh, we should go to urgent care. So the whole process kind of unfolds from there for his um, his diagnosis and treatment for kidney cancer. Why did this feel like a helpful way to, to document and cope with what you both were going through? I think there's something about comics where it's really easy to be both serious and funny at the same time. Using humor as a way to cope is like, that's a good way to cope. But And it's also a way to show like, oh, you know, I'm really ignorant when it comes to medical stuff and how the human body works um, because I've never thought that much about it. I've just sort of always relied on on my body and my family's bodies like working well. So when the doctors would be like, oh, we're going to have to stage the cancer. Well, what does that mean? You know, and they start using some medical language. Did you do something about that? In your yeah, life? yeah. There's there, there's one in there where it's like it's um, on stage. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, well, for the soliloquy, the cancer has to stand here, and <laughs> we'll have some peonies and the cat over here. You know, um, and then it's like, oh wait, you mean like stage one, stage two, mm-hmm. stage three? Um, how did your husband feel about it as you were doing this throughout the year? Well, he was really supportive about it, even though it's funny because it's a whole year. So you can see my my drawing, I think, actually gets a little bit better um, as it goes along. So he was really supportive about that. I would often just show him the comic after I had made it uh, as part of having coffee, and and he'd get a chuckle out of it. Um, And then sometimes he told me later that sometimes it would help him better understand, like, what I was going through in the caregiver role, Hmm. too. I'm just laughing because you said possible side effects for the medically damned. Loose, runny earwax, perpetually fast-growing toenails, incontinence, armpit blisters. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I can see this must have been a really difficult year, but being able to see the humor and the challenges around it, it feels like you can process it in a different way than just with writing. Yeah, I think there there's something about, you know, because whenever you make a drawing, you kind of have to sit with it. Mm. And you have to think about things for a little bit longer, um, in a way, almost reenact them in your mind or like relive them, right? Because you're trying to figure out well, what's the scene? Um, what else was in the room? So there's actually a kind of an act of uh, attention that is going to sort of reimagining in order to try to draw something. You call it unfiltered. Why? Yeah, so <laughs> unfiltered is a pun because it's a largely unedited um, diary. I didn't include all 365 entries, so most of the editing is just figuring out which ones kind of solidified this particular story. And then also the kidney's role in the body is to filter. Since we're not a visual medium uh, in radio, tell us how you went about choosing what to illustrate and sort of the style you used to do it. Mm. Yeah. So one thing about trying to draw for comics is trying to draw in a way where the images aren't going to be redundant to the text because, you know, what are people going to get out of that? So trying to figure out, like, what's going to be a little bit more surprising or or interesting or shed more light on something that you wrote. I think, as like, with the writing, there's something about comics that feel a little bit more like writing a poem 
because there's an economy of language, an economy of words. Um, you don't have a lot of space, so you have to be very precise. And then trying to figure out what is going to augment that with the visuals. I noticed after I had compiled it that when things were going well, I tend to focus more on nature. And when things were really rough, everything got a little bit more abstract because I think drawing emotions is probably a lot more difficult. How do you hope this might help people going through similar challenging times with medical diagnoses or other things? You know, both for people who are acting as caregivers and like the people who are the caregivers of the caregivers, because I know that, you know, even in my situation, I relied a lot on friends and family support. I think there's, you know, with memoir, there's always this nice, somebody else has lived through this. And so maybe there's a little bit of hope in that. Maybe there's a little bit of humor. Maybe people can see themselves in it. Um, yeah. You recently had a reading and an activity where you led people in doodling, sort of help others play around with creating diary comics. So can anyone do this? Because honestly, I, I can't draw. Yeah, I think anyone can draw comics. Probably when a lot of people think about comics, they think about, you know, Marvel comics and X-Men and the sort of that high level of detail that's in those comics. But the charming thing about doing something like diary comics or, you know, what used to be called maybe alternative comics is that there's a really supportive community of people out there who make these. And and even if you're like a novice uh, at drawing, you can still make something that's really emotive. And I think... You know, drawing a comic, you're not trying to draw the Sistine Chapel, right? Actually, cartoons, the history of the word cartoon is that it would be a, a large drawing made in order to make a mural, right, first. So it's just a draft. It's something you can be uh, loose and free and, and fun with, even if it's smiley faces and stick figures. How was the event? How did it go? The event was a lot of fun. There was such a great range of people who showed up. There were children who came. And, of course, when I started talking about cancer, they were, like, drifting off. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, children, college students, adults, grandparents. Yeah. So a full range of people came. And did your, your husband has recovered? Yes, he's oh, in remission. Okay. I guess I should have been really oh, clear about okay. that up front. <laughs> Um, well, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, it's funny. We actually, he just had a, a, a CAT scan the week before the book came out. And I was like, oh, God, you get the scan anxiety every time. And then especially for us, because he'd had a successful surgery. They thought the margins were clear. You know, they got the tumor out. They got the kidney out. And then the follow-up CAT scan, um, there was a nodule. Mm. Right. And so that means another surgery. And so you really do get a kind of like scan anxiety every time someone's uh, going in to, to get looked at. I can imagine. I'm looking at the end of your book, and it's a lot of nature. Yeah. So things were looking a little bit better. Yeah, the, it starts to go into haiku even. Yeah, I yeah, saw that. haiku yeah. comics. <laughs> there seems like a lot of freedom in a format like this. Yeah, I mean, it's just really kind of teasing anything out of your day from – you know, those little wild poppies that have just popped up and now are, are on their way out to uh, walk in in the bosque or even go into the cancer center. You will be presenting on diary comics as mindfulness at the Graphic Medicine Conference in Toronto later this year. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I've, uh, I haven't uh, been able to go to the conference yet, and they're doing it live again. And so, and I also haven't been to Toronto, so I think that'll be 
exciting. What is the Graphic Medicine Conference? <laughs> um, so Graphic Medicine refers to comics that are all about uh, medicine in some way or another. So usually they're comics that either show the patient experience and the patient side of medicine, or they show they're like educational for to teach people about you know a disease or a treatment. And so the Graphic Medicine Conference every year brings together people from all over the world who are either practitioners or who study it professionally, and also people from healthcare. Are some of these people are patients, but they're also doctors and healthcare providers? Yeah, there's a, a full range of, of folks will go to that. How do people find each other who are in comics? You know, I, right now a lot of people are on Instagram, and that's a good way to find people. I write a Substack newsletter with mm. my friend Nora Hickey, who has a podcast, City on the Edge, which is really good. Mm -hmm. but, oh, yeah. Um, One of our um, producers, Ty Bannerman, yeah. has worked on that. Mm -hmm. And so we do a biweekly newsletter about nonfiction comics and do interviews with uh, people who create them as well. So that's, a, that's another way that you, know, you can learn more about mm -hmm. who's making nonfiction comics. You are going to be talking about comics as mindfulness at the conference. Yeah. Is this a common theme or is a special a subspecialty of comics? It's just something that I've been thinking about in specific with the the practice of doing a diary comic. Um, so what does it mean to to sit down and and keep a diary and why do we keep a diary? You know, it's very different than um, keeping other forms of like we track and measure so much other parts of our lives. I have a friend who who's a, a fencer at, and um, is at UNMH I think he's a virologist, but um, he was like, oh, that sounds like an interesting book. And, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of see what the patient experience is. But it's not, you know, for a diary comic like this, it's not like, oh, I'm we're measuring, you know, blood sugar every day or kidney function or talking about symptoms or, or something like that. It's a lot more holistic than just the medical experience, because anytime someone is ill, you know, it's not just the illness. Right. Mm -hmm. There's we're whole people. I have to ask you about your book, Glitches at the FBI. Since The X-Files was one of my all-time favorite shows, you wrote poems using only language from the scripts? Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I so I, I grew up watching The X-Files. I've always loved The X-Files. I was watching an episode, and I started to think, you know, the language that they use is really great. They had some wonderful writers on that show. And so they, they moved neatly from like the scientific, pseudo-scientific language, investigative language to something kind of earthy and concrete. And so I, I started to play with that idea of like, well, can I do poems that just use just the dialogue, only words spoken in one episode of the show and like make a poem about that. That's not, some of them are kind of X-Files-y, like aliens and things, but a lot aren't actually. And um, and so that's kind of like a freeing experiment of using found poetry. Like one of the things that I realized when I was writing it is since there's no way that anyone will confuse me, the author, with the speaker of the poem, that the speaker can be anybody and can be any character and they can say whatever they wanna say. Um, and so that was kind of a lot of fun. Did they give you, so the company gave you the scripts? No, I oh, okay. I, wa I watched a lot of TV during the <laughs> pandemic. And <laughs> um, also you can find a lot of the scripts online. I think you're going to be performing these at Chatter. 
ABQ? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. In June? I'll be at Chatter in June on June 18th, and then I'll also be in Chatter in Santa Fe on August 26th. Oh, okay. Great. You have authored uh, also, as you mentioned, a book on tent camping in New Mexico. You've done public artworks. When you have a creative impulse, how do you decide which medium you will use to express it? Geez, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to stump you on the last yeah, one. Yeah, I guess I, I think about like what what the creative impulse is and like what the kind of problem is that's being solved through the act of creation. And then what sort of medium should it be? Like, is it public art? Is it, you know, comics? Is it like a, a painting or a poem or an essay? That was Honors College Professor Amaris Ketchum speaking about her new comics diary, Unfiltered, a cancer year diary. Also, thanks to my other guest, Abriana Morales. You can hear this episode and all our episodes at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase.